0: Bliss. We stopped about once every hour to let the dogs out. We stop at the same side roads every year. It's a good way to notice how things change because every now and then a side road will be gone with something built there and we'll have to find a new side road. We stopped in South Carolina just as the sun was coming up. We were on a side road of dark South Carolina soil, dirty sand. Mr. Copeland's car was a little ways up in front of us. Nor Lee was taking care of Taylor. Thatcher and I leaned back against the front of the car, watching the edge of the blazing sun appear above distant trees. Do you suppose Meredith and Mark will be with us next year? I said. I don't know if they get leave. Meredith and Mark were standing in the edge of the woods watching the dogs. Meredith had a tennis ball he was throwing into the woods and the dogs would fetch it. They were beautiful white pointers with brown or black spots and freckles. Nick, Sam, Joe, and Sailor. Joe belongs to Mark and the rest are Mr. Copeland's. Well, I hope they'll have lots of leave time, I said. What? said Norley, walking up. She's 15, wearing glasses, in that awkward stage of puberty and gangly legs, which will soon change into fluid beauty and grace. Meredith and Mark. I hope they'll be able to make the trip with us next year. I think it's stupid they're going in the first place. It's not stupid, said Thatcher. How would you feel without the United States Army? It would be all right with me, said Nora Lee. No, it wouldn't. That's stupid, Nora Lee. This day and age, you don't have an army, somebody will take you over. Not the Vietnamese, I said. Yeah, but you don't ever know. Nobody knew Hitler was such a big deal when he started out you can't take the chance. You got to have a military arm. Why ain't you going then? asked Norley. You know why I ain't going, Taylor, and I'm too old. Load him up, called Mr. Copeland. Norley. I love babies. I love to babysit, but I can't stand riding anywhere in the car with Papa. He reads all the signs out loud for one thing And then when we stop somewhere, he tries to be cute with the waitress and bores her to death. These dogs get on my nerves, too. They sniff my crotch. But Bliss lets Taylor ride with me, and I love taking care of him. He's real easy to get along with. There's only one place so far that I won't go back to babysit. The Parkers. They've got three children, and their house is the biggest mess I have ever seen, and they don't even have sheets on the beds. And they didn't pay me nothing hardly. My favorite thing about Florida is Silver Springs. The rest of it is boring. It's just hunt, 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 dead birds, dead birds, dead birds, and the way they take their guts out and everything is gross. The cats eat it. We've got one teacher at school, Mr. Creston, who talks about Vietnam, but the principal called us in the auditorium and told about being in Korea in the Marines and made a speech about what America stands for. I had Mr. Creston's class right after that, and he said there were two sides to the coin. Right before we left for vacation, somebody said Mr. Creston himself got called to the principal's office. Meredith said he wanted to go in the Marines because it might be his only chance to get in a war, and he didn't want to miss it. Mark wants to fly a jet. What Papa would die if he knew knew about is J.W. Potts. J.W. is this black guy at school. He plays halfback on the football team and everybody loves him. He sat with me on the bus, I'm a cheerleader, on the last two road trips and he's really neat. The problem will come if he actually asks me for a date. I don't know what I'll do. I'll probably say no, but in a way I'd like to say yes because he's so neat. We've got a game coming up at Grove City right after we get back, and I've got to think up some stuff to talk about if he sits with me again. One thing I like about him is he's a Christian and doesn't make a big deal out of it. He doesn't curse around me, but I've heard him curse. So a neat thing I told him about on the bus trip was Papa's funk speech to Meredith and Mark. I figured it'd be a neat thing to tell him, kind of bold, so I told him. Papa had Meredith and Mark sitting out on the route one day. I was probably six or seven. I went out the front door instead of the back and then sneaked around the garage where they couldn't see me, came up on the far side, close enough to where I could hear. I thought all the time he was talking about funkin', but it was the other word. Papa don't always say his words clear. Later, when I told Bliss that I'd heard Papa explain about funk, She spelled the real real word and told me about it. Papa was walking back and forth while he talked to Meredith and Mark. When you start noticing animals doing it, it's time you know what to call it. Some people call it screwing. Some call it having intercourse, capitating, making love, or funkin'. I thought he said. Mark, your mom ain't likely to explain it to you. Our mama wouldn't ever mention about nothing like that. Now, your mama might talk around it once in a while when you're maybe 40 or 50. I already know about it, said Meredith. I sat down and leaned my back against the garage. This was going to be interesting, I figured. Papa told all this about his papa telling him. Then he talked about peckers, about God giving all the male animals peckers and all the female animals snatches, and that it was the best feeling in the world when you do it, but if you did it to somebody you weren't married to, you could get a disease and your pecker might fall off. I remember wondering what might happen to my snatch. I didn't tell it all to J.W., of course. I, of course, didn't say pecker or snatch, and I didn't tell him about mama talking to me about having my period, which Samantha Phillips's mother forgot to do. When I told Bliss about it the first time, about Papa telling Meredith and Mark I still thought it was funk because I'd never seen it written down then. But Papa never set me down on the route and told me all about it. I wish he would sometime. He set me down and talked to me about lying and cheating, though. The thing I ain't told JW about is how everybody in my family says nigger except Mama. I think he would understand it. He said he hears it at football games. We talked about that some on the bus. Thatcher. Meredith had this little nigger buddy, City Lewis, that used to hang out at Bailey's Esso, and Meredith talked him into a basketball game one time, except instead of three or four guys, City recruited eight or nine. They ended up down at the gym, which was the old wooden gym they tore down two or three years ago. That gym wasn't hardly any bigger than the basketball court itself, and it had one bench up against the wall, which went all the way around, and there was a big coal stove in the corner. What was so weird about it was that there had never been any niggers in the gym except Pete, the janitor, and then suddenly one Saturday morning, here was Meredith and Mark and Ted and Michael and Jerry and the nine niggers. This was after me and Bliss were married because I remember asking Bliss if she wanted to ride there with me to watch. She had something else to do. They had built a fire in the coal stove in the corner and were doing layups when I got there. City and them had three cheerleaders dressed in green and white cheerleader outfits with pom-poms, and they had some spectators along, two mothers who had driven them all down there and four or five more. It was real cold, but I remember City had two or three players who were barefooted. He said they were the Tigers. What did Meredith's team want to be? Meredith said the float planes. They started playing and the cheerleaders started cheering and their four reserve players lined up on the side. When a player got tired, he'd get at the end of the line and the one at the front would go in the game. I can't remember what the score was, but it was real cold, I know that. So every time out or break or something, somebody shoveled more coal into that stove. The thing was that somebody had used the stovepipe as a target for coal bricks and dented it and knocked it out of kilter so that it leaked smoke where two sections of pipe fitted together. To fix it, somebody would have to sit on somebody's shoulders and twist the loose section of pipe until it fitted tight. The game was about half over, the stove was red-hot glowing, and smoke from the leak covered the ceiling and was dropping lower and lower. The only light came from high-up windows and was turning a dark gold color. Ted and Mike helped Mark up on Meredith's shoulders and gave him a coat so that he could put his hands in the sleeves and not burn his hands on the pipe. He was going to fit the loose sections back tight so the leaking would stop. I'm just sitting there watching, waiting for the worst. I was at the back door in case Mr. Thompson came in the front. Mark had his hands in the sleeves like he was putting the jacket on backwards, up on Meredith's shoulders, the sleeves drooping over his hands. About the time Mark got hold of the pipe, Meredith touched his knee against the red-hot stove and jerked and hollered. Meredith lost his balance, and it looked like when you hold a baseball bat on the tips of your fingers, but it falls anyway. Meredith tried to get back under him, but it was too late. When Mark fell, he grabbed and took the whole pipe down with him. Only one section of pipe was left in the stove, and the black smork roared out like out of a train. Everybody started doing different things then. Meredith got the shovel, knocked open the stove door, and started shoveling out red hot coals and throwing them out the gym door. I stood up. Black smoke was rolling down the back wall, and the big black cloud was lowering. Meredith was dropping hot coals out of the shovel onto the floor, and Mark was kicking them out the door. Somebody got a fire extinguisher from somewhere and started spraying in through the door on the hot coals. That made more smoke than ever come out the short pipe and the stove door. You could see coal dust dropping from the air like it was sifting through somebody's hands. The bottom of the cloud was just about at everybody's heads, and Meredith's face was as black as cities. There was no choice but to leave. You couldn't see the goals. We just closed the door and left. I looked back at the gym, and smoke was seeping out through cracks in the boards and out the top corners of the door in two little black upward-flowing rivers, and sort of billowing out under the roof overhang. But the worst part of the whole thing was that we walked to Mike's backyard to wash off our faces, and Mrs. Tillman, their neighbor, saw it and told Mike's mother we'd been dressed up like niggers, and Mike's mother called Papa. I was lucky because I didn't go straight home, but Meredith and Mark did, and Papa met them in the yard, blessed them out for changing races, and told Meredith he was going to give him a whipping, but he wouldn't say when. I think he waited about two weeks. Mark. Meredith used to brag about getting Rhonda hot. We'd go frog gigging and talk. One night, it's his turn to gig, my turn to row. Four bullfrogs are in the tow sack in the floor of the rowboat. Meredith sits in the bow, hands cupped over his mouth, answering a bullfrog. I'm in the stern, paddling toward the sound of the frog on the bank. Hurry up, he whispers over his shoulder. He picks up a three-pronged gig with one hand, a flashlight with his other hand. I drag the paddle on one side and then the other, steering the boat toward the bellowing. Meredith stands slowly and hoists the gig like it's a spear. The frog croaks from the bank straight off the bow. Meredith clicks on the flashlight, finds the frog sitting on the muddy bank just above water level, looking shiny wet and sleepy. He holds the light on him and slowly extends the gig toward him as we approach the bank. Just before the boat touches land, he stabs the gig through the frog and into the mud. The frog croaks a muffled croak and kicks twice. Meredith gives the gig a quick swing up, lifting the frog into the air, lets the gig handle slide down through his hand, places the flashlight between his leg, almost loses his balance, pulls the frog from the gig, drops the gig into the boat, grabs the light, shines it on the frog, which he's holding for me to see. He's a nice one. Biggest one yet, he says. Not as big as the last one. Bigger. He turns around, keeping his balance, picks up the towsack sack, and drops the frog in with the others. Let's go fry some frog legs, he says. Yeah, I'm hungry. Meredith balances the cast iron frying pan on two small logs at the end of the fire and, with a stick, pushes several coals and small pieces of burning wood under it. He dips a spoon into a small jar of congealed bacon drippings, shakes it into the frying pan, wipes the spoon clean, unfolds a piece of waxed paper, spoons a mixture of cornmeal and flour from another small jar onto the waxed paper, and rolls the washed frog legs in it until they're covered. He takes a pinch of flour and cornmeal between his thumb and finger and drops it into the pan. It's not ready, he says. I'm about to starve. You got that other stuff? In the knapsack, is it time? Put it in that pan, the beans, and put it on the fire on the other side there, like I got this. I get out the can of pork and beans, open them, pour them into a pan, and place the pan at the edge of the fire. Then I get out two deep red tomatoes, clean my hunting knife, and slice the tomatoes into a tin dish. Meredith drops a pinch of flour and meal into the pan, and it sizzles. Thank goodness. Ain't you about to starve? Yeah, I'm about to starve my ass off. Meredith drops four legs into the grease. They sizzle. He rolls them several times. Hand me that salt. I hand the tin salt shaker to Meredith. He sprinkles salt as he rolls the frog legs in the pan and talks. They're going to be good. Just the right size. Not too big, not too little. Papa won't do great big frogs. These are cooking just right too. See that little bit of smoke coming up? That's just right. "'I know. If it's hot enough and you get the flour to stick good, "'then they'll be real crisp. They're doing just right. "'After they're cooked, we eat the frog legs along with beans and tomatoes on ten plates "'and drink water from our canteens. "'We eat slices of white bread with the meal, sop up our plates with it.' "'I wish we had some corn on the cob,' said Meredith. "'Me too. The coals will be right in about fifteen minutes.' What about old man Blackwelder's cornfield? Five minutes to get there, I say. Five to get for corn and five to get back. The coals will be just right. Let's go. Get the flashlight. We don't need it. The moon's bright as day. Right. We don't need it. The almost full moon is so bright the clouds are white. We cross a field of broom straw, a patch of woods, the road, crouched and half running, and stop in a corn row. The stalks look black against the bright night sky. When we get back, the campfire is a pile of smoldering red-hot coals. A small flame flickers out, returns, another appears. We push the corn ears up under the coals so they meet like spokes on a wheel, then cover them with hot coals and sit watching. I wish we had some butter, I say. They're good with just salt. You don't need butter. Later, Meredith takes a stick and spreads the coals away from two of the corn ears and rakes the ears onto the ground away from the coals. They steam and are splotched with black where the coals have burned partly through the green shucks. They look just right, says Meredith. Let's see if this one's done. You'll burn your ass if you ain't careful. He peels back the steaming hot green and black shucks, jerking his hand away when he gets burned. He pulls away all the shucks most of the silks, tosses the ear into the air and catches it, then quickly drops it, steaming, onto his plate. It smells sweet, I say. It's pretty, ain't it? Meredith blows onto the ear of corn, sprinkles it with salt, bites into it and chews, opening his mouth so he won't be burned. Man, that's great. Taste that. He hands me the plate. I take a bite. Mmm, it's done. Let's get the rest out. Pull it out and let it be coolin'. Shuck that other in for you. This stuff is hot as core gives pussy, says Meredith. I shuck the corn. You remember when Jack and Richard saw her and Brian Williams doing it in his car, said Meredith. Broad daylight. Yeah, I remember that. Meredith takes a bite of corn. Hell, I got Rhonda hot. She gets hot real easy. She unbuttoned her blouse in the barn one time, too. I don't talk about her doing that with me. They're all kind of wild or of wild, or something, I say to Meredith. You ever had a girl to stick her tongue in your ear? Sort of. Sort of? Yeah. I'm talking about French kissing in your ear, not just plain old French kissing. There's a big difference. French kissing in your ear drives you crazy. And if you do it in their ear, it's guaranteed, double D guaranteed to make them hot. You ever got a girl hot? Of course. Who? Christine Majory? I thought so. Give me another ear. I'm going to stick my tongue in it. (laughs) Ha! We eat three ears apiece and leave three for breakfast. Late in the night, we crawl into the tent under our blankets and lie there. Let's see who can fart first, says Meredith, and he farts. (laughs) We watch the dying coals. You ever hear about old Ross giving somebody a hot coal to eat, says Meredith. Told him it was chocolate. Yeah, I heard that one a bunch of times. Bliss. On the first night, things were the same as always. We watched television for a while, talked, the men fed the dogs, and we went to our separate quarters. Miss Esther and I were staying in Lee's room as usual, Uncle Hawk and Aunt Sibyl's daughter who works in Kentucky. The same pictures were on the dresser, Lee's baby pictures and Uncle Hawk in a uniform when he was very young and Aunt Sibyl and Uncle Hawk when they got married. When we were getting dressed to go to bed, I asked Aunt Esther, Was Uncle Hawk in World War One?" That picture, I never heard him mention it. No, as a matter of fact, he wasn't. He bought that uniform at an army surplus store. He was running from the law then. I remember washing it for him and Mama crying. We washed his clothes and sent them to him for over a year, Somebody would leave them off and pick them up. What was he in trouble for? He escaped off a chain gang, for one thing. It was all because of drinking. You've heard it all talked about. It was a real shame. But he's gone straight for a long time now. That other was a long time ago. Time changes some things. I felt she wanted to, the topic closed. I was about to bring up the question of Meredith and Mark going into service and perhaps not being along next year, but I didn't. It didn't seem like the place or time. Yet, I wanted to explode with my concern so that this family would somehow register what was about to happen. They seemed to treat the imminent departure as a normal event. I wanted to shake them up and say, Don't you all have something to say about this? Aren't you concerned? They'll talk far more about old Ross, Tyree, bird dogs, and cookin' than they will about these young men going away to war. Day 2. Silver Springs. It was exciting again, and this was the first year Taylor got the full effect of all the wonderment. His favorite was the monkeys in the trees, which we saw on the Jungle Cruise. On the second night, Aunt Sybil fixed quail casserole, one of her best dishes. Dan Braddock was there. The conversation got on to Vietnam. Meredith likes to call it BF Nam, because that's what Taylor calls it. At first, I didn't want to get involved, but I got to thinking that I'd been a part of this family for ten years, a veritable decade. Nobody else in the family has gone to war, have they? I asked. Thomas, Esther's husband, said Uncle Hawk. Blood kin. I mean. Miss Esther eyed me. Isaac? Walker's oldest, was killed in the Civil War. Ross's brother, she said. And Daddy was a frogman, said Norley, and built bridges, said Mr. Copeland. But none of that counts, says Meredith, because he never got any further than Norfolk, Virginia. The timing's always been wrong, said Uncle Hawk, since the Civil War, anyway. Like Thatcher there, he's got a kid and is too old. Aunt Sibyl passed the biscuits. Well... I'll just miss them being far away for one thing. I'll just miss them being away for one thing, I said. Who was in the Civil War? Asked Dan Braddock. Isaac, Walker's boy, was killed. Then Walker went in sometime, a couple of times, I think, said Uncle Hawk. Turned around and came home the first time because they told him it was over. While he was gone, Caroline threw boiling water on the Yankees. Did you ever hear about that, Francis? Rhonda. I mean, Rhonda, excuse me, honey. It was France's last year, wantin' it, Meredith? You lie, Uncle Hawk. Anyway, Caroline threw boiling water on the Yankees. What did she do that for, asked Rhonda. She was mad. They stole her meat and was sitting around in the front yard eating it. I'd have been afraid they might have killed me if I'd done that. She wasn't afraid. Poured a pan of boiling water on em and said she wished they were dead and in the belly of hell. Next day, Ross, who won't big as nothing, shot at him from out of a tree. A hollow tree, holed up in a hollow tree, and they couldn't find him. He climbed up inside of a tree. Pass some of that casserole, said Dan Braddock. Maybe Mark can fly that float plane to Vietnam, Albert. Scare all the slant eyes to death. It won't fly, said Meredith. That's what I mean, said Dan Braddock. I get me some bigger engines on it and it'll fly, said Mr. Copeland. That's all it needs, a little more horsepower. You just need a horse, said Mildred, buttering a biscuit, or a mule. Keep figures on him, she looked up. He's got a notebook with his figurin' in it on the float plane, plus all the children's heights and weights and newspaper clippings and I don't know what all. I got two notebooks, said Mr. Copeland. Except stuff on the float plane ain't accurate, said Thatcher. Thatcher worries about that. I don't think it's all that important. The thing will fly or not fly, regardless of what's in the notebooks. Except, I guess the notebook would be a fun thing for Taylor to read once he's grown.